Sing out the jubilee with all the fire we can breathe. Tom Brady says he's going to quit football for real, for real this time. And he's like posting on Instagram. I love my family. I love my teammates. I love my friends. I love my coaches. I love football. I love you all. And then Giselle is like wishing you only wonderful things in this new chapter of your life. And it just feels, baby, come back. Well, who's his family? That's weird. Who's married to Giselle? Well, I thought they were divorced. So what is she Yeah, but about? okay. So he said that they were going to quit foot. He was going to quit football and then he went back and then they got divorced. Right. So is she going to come back? If I had to guess, I would say no, but. Sad. Oh, she seems like a really good mom too. And he's just been obsessed with his sport. So I don't know. I don't know what it's like to be filthy rich. I'm sure they have other problems. <laughs> beyond that it's probably a simple analysis well i'm trying to distill it though he has been single-mindedly pursuing greatness who's a better football player i'm we're probably the worst people to have I this know. conversation <laughs> can i name a football player apparently there are two brothers playing in the super bowl and that means more than one thing because i think one headline i saw said it's the first time two starting quarterbacks like for each team are black uh-huh. but then also i think there are brothers, like related people playing on each team. Not just like brothers. That's what I'm saying. <laughs> we should move on before we tread into some waters we're unqualified to swim in. Even more. I don't know. Go Chiefs. This is why it's good to watch Instagram stories because I didn't have to watch a single second of football. <laughs> but I know who's going to the Super Bowl and I know trivia about it already. I just told the girls group chat that the next time, because I will check my phone on a Sunday and I'll have like 57 unread messages. I just told them that I'm going to live tweet the presidential debate to that thread <laughs> next time to spam them in the same way. Yeah, because every Sunday or whatever, your phone's blowing up with every play and we couldn't care less. We jumped on the Yellowstone bandwagon. Bandwagon. We like it. We're not caught up yet. We're just starting season three and i did some research online saying that's the consensus best season do you remember that girl who said on facebook <laughs> that we're not allowed to do research because we're not scientists I, every yeah. time we say that phrase i think of her it was some well she shared some viral tiktok that was going around during the first couple of rounds of covid vaccines and she's like if you're not a scientist you can't do research what is a scientist, though? According to her, it's somebody who has like a litany of degrees. I was going to say, I don't think Aristotle had a PhD, but I th- I might have been wearing white. He was also a cishet white male, so that's true. we just forget everything he said. I didn't have a stethoscope, but I googled what is the best season of Yellowstone, and the consensus seems to be that the first three were better than the two that followed. So maybe it all goes downhill from here, but I really like the show. Who's your favorite character? John. I feel like that's saying like Ned Stark is your favorite. <laughs> Remember when we started watching Game of Thrones and you're like, so who's your favorite character so far? We had watched one episode and I was like, Ned Stark for sure. And you're like, oh, I'm so sorry. <laughs> yeah, I had read the book. Oh, man. <laughs> well, he is and he isn't, right? So he's dedicated to this older way of life that is constantly threatened by new technology and development and quote-unquote social progress but he's willing to do what it takes to preserve his way of life Mm -hmm. ned was not i can't really remember 
he wouldn't do the Machiavellian underhanded things it would have taken to survive. Uh. And so Littlefinger, spoiler alert, was able to betray him and have him beheaded. Whereas John is dropping bodies. I can appreciate like the theme of we're the last of our kind. I think that's why a lot of people watch the show, first of all. I think a lot of like older Gen Xers and maybe younger boomers like Yellowstone because they feel like it's like this nostalgic feeling that they had that everyone has always had. But right. like they feel like they're the first, you know, mm-hmm. that we're the last of our kind. And the people younger than us, the generations that we're leaving behind aren't capable or experienced or tough enough to be able to preserve what we have are giving them. Yeah, that's certainly a theme and that might explain why it's more popular in red states than blue states and why it's embarrassing in some circles to admit that you like the show. Well, yeah, because then you're the like red-blooded boomer who shares memes of Jesus on your timeline so that you'll make it into heaven or whatever. (laughs) Yeah, share this 40 times or Jesus won't forgive you. Mm -hmm. But I think that's just a pretentiousness and I'm not quite sure where it comes from. So when we mention that we're watching it to some friends, they get the same uncomfortable, oh, that's fun. Ugh, my in-laws are watching that. (laughs) Right, my in-laws are watching that or, oh yeah, my mom watches NCIS too. (laughs) And you and I would never watch that and they're obviously different kinds of things. But maybe... Yellowstone is such a more complex show than NCIS. No, I totally agree. That's what I'm trying to say. This is... Like if Red America didn't watch prestige TV shows like The Wire or The Sopranos or Game of Thrones or whatever, this is the first breakout show like that. If they didn't watch Breaking Bad, this might be the first time they watch a show like that. And I don't know why the people that watched all those other shows wouldn't like this one. Objectively, I don't see how it's any worse than Well, since we've moved away from cable television into the like streaming service platform, it's definitely reinforced that how on Facebook, you know, you can just unfriend the people that you don't want to see. On Twitter, you don't have to, you can just block whoever you don't want responding to your content online and with streaming services, like with cable TV, right? If you were to stay home, you know, the last era that I remember where I had cable TV, I was in high school. And if I stayed home sick from school one day, I had to watch what was on the TV. Mm -hmm. And I remember certain times of day, like TLC at 11 o'clock AM had this show that I liked. But then other than that, there was like a few hours in the middle of the day that was just daytime TV and I hated it. So it's like sick days. You thought it would be cool because you could just sit around and watch TV, but it's not the same shows that are on Saturday when you're at home. Right. It's week time, daytime TV, which is much different. And like, for older stay-at-home moms. Yeah, you're watching The View and whatever else is trying to be The Right, view. yeah, and yeah. when you're 17, you don't want to watch The View. But now that we have all these streaming platforms, people can very much tailor what they consume and they can build their identity around what they consume at the end of the day. And they can decide that Yellowstone doesn't match their identity or their ideal. And then they can just choose to not watch it. But if they would actually maybe turn on for 20 minutes, they would like it. I know I'm like that, too. There are things that I refuse to watch because I don't think it fits my vibe or aligns. Don't let her undersell that. The vast majority of things I show you, you say no to (laughs) just by looking at the cover art. But I don't want to Okay, but I have been right a lot, too. No, that's true. You were right a lot. Especially when it's something I haven't, neither of us have seen. They say don't judge a book by the cover, but like every time I've done that, it's kind of worked out. It's kind of worked out. For both of our benefits. 
with the caveat that it's usually things I haven't seen that you hate. But before we focus on that, I do want to say up front, there are no good people in Yellowstone. Like, you're talking about it being a nostalgic, oh, I want to preserve my way of life, but all those people suck. There's one good person. There's that guy in the bunkhouse, the older cowboy that helped Rip when he was younger. Yeah, he's got Lloyd. He's got some honor, but... He's got loyalty, I guess. None of But them... that's not the number one... Right. Well, Rip is loyal to Beth and John and to the ranch, but... Yeah, but they're all murderers. They're all murderers. None of them are believers. None yeah, not them, really. None of them are married. That's true. So they're drinking, smoking... Yeah, there's a lot of adultery it's in that show. eat, drink, and be merry for tomorrow we die, almost explicitly. Yeah. And so as a as an encomium to that way of life, sure, good riddance. If that's all that America was, then yeah, there is a better alternative. Mm -hmm. So I wonder, I can't say it's self-conscious on the part of Taylor Sheridan, the showrunner. I don't think he's saying, well, these people are bad too. Maybe they should die out. I think he just thinks they're cool. But I think, or at least the show has revealed to me that if you're going to restore America or if you're going to try and preserve a way of life that's not the way to do it either because okay you have your ranch now what your kids all hate you and are dysfunctional and you're gonna die and that'll be it yeah they're super sad every single one of them is super sad i would rather not have my kid kidnapped and traumatized for the sake of however many hundreds thousands of acres of beautiful prairie i'd rather live in a tiny apartment complex and have them not have gone through that experience and be happy yeah I think a lot of people watch it, though, because it's such the antithesis to their day to day. Like they all live. We all live, what, in suburbia with maybe a quarter of an acre and heat up TV dinner and plop down and watch someone else's reality that's very different from ours to escape, which is cool. Yeah. That's what entertainment is for. Yeah. So you can escape and be a member of the Montana Mafia <laughs> and fight. And the stakes are a lot lower. Welcome to episode nine of the Free State Podcast. Today we're talking about why it's probably not a conspiracy that's burning down all the eggs. But more so food labeling requirements, how all of that works, and who should be in charge of what if private or public forces would be better to be the ones dictating what certain labels mean and the conditions that food is produced in and sold from. And then we're also going to talk about public sector unions because Chase read a book. And if you want to tell us what you think about either of those things, you can email us at freestatepod at gmail.com. Or if you want to be on the show, you can go to anchor.fm slash freestate and leave us a voice memo, and we might be able to respond to you on the next episode. I really wish someone would leave a voice memo. Leave us a message. We'll play it on air. It'll be fun. Don't yeah. make me make Jace's mom call in. She'll do it. <laughs> She's going to do it now. Enjoy. So we're going to talk about food? Yeah. Are you hungry? No. Do I seem hungry? So Tucker Carlson beat us to the punch with what we were going to cover this week with the egg fire. So there was a factory in Connecticut that burned down, just randomly burned down. This happens all the time. I need to check to see if they've decided what it was that burned down and there was like a hundred thousand chickens that died that's right and it burned for hours the building did yeah i know it's hard to contain something like that but i don't know don't you have sprinklers <laughs> you would think so with all the regulations on 
buildings. Right. A giant commercial poultry factory you'd think would have sprinklers or some kind of fire suppression system. So the conspiracy is that this was intentional in the middle of like record high egg prices because this building supplied something like millions, tens of millions of eggs. And it comes on the heels of last year. There are a bunch of random freak accidents at meatpacking facilities. Like there was a plane that crashed into a meatpacking facility last year Mm. and it burned down. What are the chances of that? Yeah, that's weird. And so then that was on Tucker Carlson too. And then there was all the Snopes and fact checks in air quotes, fact checks after the fact saying this happens all the time. This is... Planes crash in yeah. the buildings all the time? Yeah. Don't you remember? I remember one. <laughs> the meat packing facilities are being burned down in the middle of meat shortages and price hikes. And then egg factories now are being burned down in the middle of record high egg prices and baby formula shortages during pandemics. And so there, the conspiracy is that there's something intentional happening behind the scenes to make us all more reliant on big food and big industry. Yeah, I know. I hate that explanation. I know. It's... Uh. Well, in looking <laughs> at the example that we've looked at in the most detail, the baby formula shortage, mm-hmm. that was because of specific government regulations that made the market too inflexible. And then when there was a supply shock, there was a shortage. And the only reason the supply shock happened... Well, not the only reason, but one of the contributing reasons to the supply shock with the baby formula shortage was that During COVID, the inspections by the FDA were paused. So nobody was inspecting baby formula facilities for two years during COVID. And then you had a bacterial outbreak that Mm -hmm. killed several kids. But there's no intentionality there. No, it's just a series. It's a domino effect of incompetence. And, you know, one thing falls and the next thing falls. And then soon enough, you can't feed your kids. We know more about the details in that supply chain. And I don't know on the meat and poultry side but i guess one of the ways to think about it is who benefits from jacking up food prices when they're already higher than average and most people can barely make ends meet and couldn't before Mm -hmm. when one of the factories burned the meat factories burned down last year it was jbs which is one of the top four big meat packing industries they released a statement and they said this fire or whatever that specific incident was didn't affect our production quotas So they were able to somehow, and I don't want to know how they were able to do this, but somehow in a rush timeline, they were still able to produce as much product as they would have otherwise. I know that was a big debate during the Obama administration. He was trying to put in rules for how the meatpacking industry sets their production quotas and like control the speed Mm -hmm. that people process meat. But a, a simpleton such as myself, the egg factory that burned was among the top five biggest in the country. And I just, this is not going to help. If it does anything, it won't help. It will definitely hurt. So in terms of what the conspiracy is, I'm with you on that, that this is a bad thing and like WTF. Well, I'm trying to think of who would want to do it because the vegans shouldn't want to burn egg factories because you're not having to kill an animal. And I know some factory farms are awful for chickens. So maybe that's what we're talking about. Also, yeah, like, hmm, I don't really want to eat eggs that came from a chicken that live inside a concrete building. No, I agree with that, too. And so maybe, like, are we saying it was some animal activist that did that? I'm trying to find who would want to start a fire intentionally versus, oh, it's really cold in Connecticut right now. Maybe one of the heat lamps shorted or something happened to burn it down. 
But then again, I don't know why they didn't have fire suppression systems ready. Yeah, for this that. is one of the top five biggest suppliers. They should have facility specs in place to handle a fire. I don't. Yeah, they wouldn't want to lose a hundred thousand chickens, so it seems like an easy thing. But another thing I come back to is the same people you drive on the highway with, the same people that can't merge onto the highway, are the same people that run your government, that make your food, that teach your children, that take care of your pets, that build your homes. We're all fallen and stupid. And most of us have gone through the public education system. So always assume incompetence. I'm trying. Yeah, assume incompetence. <laughs> I'm trying to remember how Jordan Peterson put it on Joe Rogan this week. It was something, he's talking about the old idea of subsidiarity. You should take control and responsibility for as much as you can. Mm -hmm. And he said something like, assume that the things that you are not responsible for are going to be dictated to you by someone tyrannical or malevolent. Mm -hmm. And so if we've outsourced food production to these companies that have proven they don't care about animal welfare and don't care even about the quality of the food, whether it's healthful, it shouldn't shock us that they would have either an oversight or allow something like this to happen because they don't really care about providing the best eggs at the best price at the best quality. That's not the purpose. Have you heard the term greenwashing? Yeah, a company will say, hey, we're going to donate so much to either planting trees or cleaning up our act to get you off of our backs while we're still going to do factory farming or whatever. Mm -hmm. yeah. It's a big thing right now. And like also then cleanwashing follows greenwashing. We don't use antibiotics, but it turns out they were illegal anyway. Or clearwashing. Mm -hmm. I don't know. It's like... Pre like giving so much information about the fact that you're green, but you're not actually saying anything. You're just like organic, regenerative farming, natural sunlight. Yeah, I <laughs> see more of this in the financial sector. Mm. You'll say, oh, hey, invest in our fund because it's ESG or whatever. But it turns out, hey, we invested in a solar panel factory or whatever, but we still get a ton of revenue from whatever dirty sources. There was a regenerative farmer on Joe Rogan that I was watching and he was talking about greenwashing and Whole Foods. And the big thing in like the integrity food movement is revealing how Whole Foods is kind of devolved into a corporate scam. Uh-oh. Is that Pre or post Amazon? Post. Okay. And because I guess Whole Foods was founded by a bunch of hippies. I don't really know the backstory. Including there. a libertarian hippie. So John Mackey, the mm -hmm. conscious capitalism guy, was saying, hey, we can have great food by people who care about quality and still make a profit. That was his whole thing. Did he retire? Why did he quit? He's old. He was done. Yeah, me too. <laughs> um well this farmer was talking about how whole foods has stages and how they grade their meat they have stages one through five okay and he was talking about how he was upset at this advertisement from whole foods because whole foods said stage one is like pff, like mind blown but then stage five is like like bigger mind blown and he was upset because he's one of these regenerative farmers that creates stage five plus meat for whole foods which emphasizes animal welfare to the point that like they're not castrating their cows there's no modification of the cow whatsoever they live on pastures and the pastures are kept a certain to a certain standard and their feed is a certain quality yeah and if they're even eating feed at this point if yeah. they're not eating like sure. grass from that was grown in heaven and then shipped down you know yeah. i'm talking like yeah, extremely yeah grass. all of, all of the good stuff exactly what you if you were to envision the perfect idyllic 
farm where your beef would come from. This guy's doing it. And yeah. so he's upset at this commercial from Whole Foods and saying that Whole Foods is greenwashing because that commercial with you know, the mind-blowing thing, they're basically lumping all of these meats together. But the stage one meats, the farms from which that beef comes from, looks quite a lot different than his. And he works really hard to make his look to a certain standard. Yeah, that would frustrate me too, because I'm sure it takes a lot more time and investment on his part to get that quality meat. And then if the other ones are essentially placed in front of consumers as of comparable quality, yeah. Mm -hmm. And then, so there's this big fight between private and public powers and how we regulate food labeling to prevent this sort of greenwashing or to make things clear and transparent to consumers and everybody's motives you know are different and some probably malicious and last month the USDA put out a new rule and you can go ahead and say it because they like bypassed their normal process or yeah well it's not that they did it incorrectly you always get mad if I don't use the right like verbiage (laughs) I'm a nerd and no one else cares about this stuff. You showed me an article that said the USDA has a new rule about organic food labeling. And part of the article said, this is the first time this policy has changed since Congress enacted these standards in 1990. And I thought, they're making new standards for how people are supposed to conduct themselves in their private behavior. That sounds like a law, and that's not what executive agencies are supposed to be doing. Congress needs to be setting policy. That's it. I don't even know what the content is. It's probably unobjectionable. But again, I go back to my ideal, not just the government side where Congress makes laws and agencies enforce it. When we're talking about food labeling, having the USDA come in and Bigfoot everything doesn't seem to be the ideal way to organize this policy. Wouldn't it make more sense if you had different labeling firms say, hey, let us inspect your meat, tell us about how you made it, and we'll tell you if it meets whatever standards, and you make the standards public, and then if you want a certification from whatever board or whatever, it can be done in the private sector is what I'm trying to say. There's no need to centralize it in the USDA. But that's already happening. There are already tons of third-party organizations that can certify things in a certain way. Yeah, and so over time, you'd have certain trusted boards that certify it either as a B corporation or organic or fair trade or humanely raised, and then consumers can decide which of those bodies they trust and where they want to buy their meat. I don't understand why the USDA has to have a central standard. I don't think, actually, that it's consumers that are most upset about the ambiguity of labeling. I think it's the producers who are most upset. Oh, yeah. They want one rule. Because it's way easier to comply with one rule. They know they go to one person and it's easier. One thing I came across when I was looking up doing this deep dive on organic stuff was the law that was passed in 2016 under Obama that had to do with GMOs and Congress. So here, this fits what you're saying. You think Congress should take the lead. And I mean, I agree with you. I'm just, you know, setting it up for you here. The Congress should be the one instituting these food regulations as opposed to the administrative state. So Congress did that in 2016, and they passed a law that prevented states from passing GMO bans. Maine and Vermont had already passed their own GMO bans. Mm -hmm. But then Congress came in and said, no, we're going to go ahead and manage that for you. You don't need to know. In fact, you can't regulate that for yourself as a state. And so now even banning GMOs or regulating GMOs is completely a federal issue. Yeah, and there are competing principles here. If we're talking about who should make policy, ideally that would be Congress and not an executive agency. But then even then, Congress doesn't have the power to do everything. And so then this 
Next question you're bringing up is federalism. What, under the Constitution, should states be in charge of versus the federal government? You're talking about interstate commerce. That's something specifically in Article 1, Section 8, that Congress is in charge of setting rules governing. There's no way to get around it. We have to talk about it. We have to talk about what? <laughs> Libertarian's favorite topic. Guns? The only thing that I could think about when I was reading about this was the Civil Rights Act. Oh, no, we are not talking about Yes, that. we need to. We need to. Okay. What about... So, <laughs> no, 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 it's funny. You're laughing. Um, Can you close the window again, please? It's like blinding me. Wait. Oh, balls. Okay. Much better. So, you immediately want to talk about civil rights. But I just <laughs> no, want to finish the GMO point. Okay. The reason Congress arguably has authority there is because the Interstate Commerce Clause gives Congress the power to set rules over commerce that travels in between states. So if they're saying this food can't come in unless it hits certain standards, that is an obstruction of trade between the states. And that's traditionally something that Congress steps in and stops. There's a big fight right now about pork. So California is trying to dictate standards for the pork industry for the entire nation right now. And that's in front of the Supreme Court under the same kind of debate. But what were you, why does that remind you of civil rights? <laughs> well, I'll set it up this way. The Wild West of food regulation, labeling, sourcing, manufacturing, all of that, I think is the result of the evolution of industry and, and, and big food as a result. Like there's been no time in history where we've had conglomerates like this producing, growing and producing and selling foods. And so this is a point in history where there's a lot of correcting that needs to happen. And then there's going to be what happens now will be the standard for like 100 years to come. I think we're at a point of what is that called? Inflection? Yeah. A paradigm shift. Yes. We're trying to decide the power structure of food regulation. And so like there's this push and pull between private and public and Who's going to decide who's in charge, who has ownership over these things? So the Civil Rights Act, without it, yeah. what would have happened? It would have taken a lot longer a for lot longer. black people to have equal civil rights. I mean, be able to go into a grocery store. That's what I'm talking about. Yeah, get yeah, a job. Equal rights, yeah. yeah. It would have but been a lot harder. Like very fundamental things. So here's the counterfactual. This is... Funny that you bring it up because Catherine Mingu Ward, who drives us crazy on the Reason podcast, talked about this for some reason, I think either at the end of the year in their New Year's episode, talking about controversial things libertarians believe. And she tried to explain the libertarian position on the Civil Rights Act of 1964 in a way that wouldn't get her canceled. And yeah, I good think luck. didn't Rand Paul try that on Rachel Maddow back when he was probably. Oh, and that, was that when he went? Shh. I don't remember. He like shushed oh, a gosh. female reporter on air. <laughs> I don't think there are any serious people who disagree with the fact that everyone here should have equal rights. Yeah. So the question is not whether black people and white people are equal. Of course they are and should be treated that way under the law. But that legal precedent. But how do you get there is what we're talking about, right? Well, yeah. And right. And the problem with setting that type of far reaching legal precedent is that now it's the same standing that is threatening to take away school lunch money from public schools if they don't let boys go into girls locker rooms. That's the problem. So the libertarian, the conservative even critique of the Civil Rights Act was not, oh, no, these are these people are fundamentally unequal. It wasn't a racist thing. The point was the way we're doing this is setting a bad precedent 
that's going to run roughshod over everything because you're violating the freedom of association and economic freedom and other things. You're compromising those for a noble end. No one's denying that. Yeah. But in doing that, you're setting us up for problems down the road. And they're so what would we prefer? Just like the John Brown vigilante, go chop some heads. I mean, I mean yes, Missouri, free state podcast. I don't know. You can look at Missouri today and you tell me how that worked out. If I don't know how much of that's his fault. But what we're talking about with the Civil Rights Act reminds me of a book by uh, Christopher Caldwell. It came out, I think it was last year, called The Age of Entitlement, America Since the 60s. And it's mainly focused on the ramifications of the Civil Rights Act, not specifically looking at the ways that it helped all of those people who needed help. No one's arguing that but in all of the implications. I'm sorry to have taken us down this road. Why? <laughs> no, I'll just read from the back. He's a guy who's written for the New York Times and the Claremont Review of Books, so he's all over the place. But here's his take. Here's the back of his book. A major American intellectual makes the historical case that the reforms of the 1960s intended to make the nation more just and humane, instead left many Americans feeling alienated, despised, misled, and ready to put an adventurer in the White House. So he's saying the 1964 Civil Rights Act and all of the other changes in the 60s led to Trump. Even the reforms that Americans love best have come with high costs and wealth, freedom, and social stability that have been spread unevenly among classes and generations. And so that's been a long-standing critique that the focus on race, especially today, hides the fact that most of the debates and divisions in society are a class thing. Or like a power thing. Yeah, and so if we have legal affirmative action policies, why should the wealthy children of Nigerian immigrants who are among, I think they're either the wealthiest or the most successful of all immigrant groups, why should they benefit from the same policies as people whose parents were enslaved and mm -hmm. face all kinds of cyclical poverty and whatnot. The recent shooting that happened, it was a black man who was beat to death by five black officers. And so Fox News was covering it in the like, see, it's not just white cops, but the there wasn't a shooting. It, it was no, a traffic they, stop. Yeah, but they beat him to death. Yeah. Just like with their fists. Oh, and yeah. And kicked him. Yeah. It was yeah. Awful. But. They obviously, cable television didn't take it to the intellectual end of the argument, which was it's not about race. It's just about a power structure. I don't expect cable news to be able to think beyond color. So all of that to say, like, when these big federal agencies with bureaucrats who live and have always lived in Washington, D.C. and not picked up a shovel or birth a cow in their life, take control over labeling and manufacturing production of food even more than they are now, that's going to become the standard. And I am just cautious and skeptical of the effects of that 80, 100 years down the road, what that will look like. Yeah, I don't want people who live in Washington, D.C. to decide what the definition of organic is. Right. Yeah, it should be a recognition of something that was developed organically, so to speak. And I brought this to our little podcast setup because I thought it was a good example. I'm looking at, we were talking about eggs last time and we get vital farm eggs. It's not an advertisement, but it should be. The last time I said this on Instagram, we got like a coupon for some free food. So <laughs> um, shout out vital farms. Anyway, we buy a ton of these eggs and in their egg cartons, they send you a little handout and it's a picture of their bird of the month. 
eager Emmy sets out on her daily adventure discovering new terrain in the fresh air and sunshine. And they talk about what their girls do all day. It's cute. And they have their little mission statement. Anyway, something like this is a way for private companies to institute order amongst the chaos and the lack of federal or definitive food labeling that consumers like me, somebody who cares, would appreciate and look for. And because of this little piece of paper, it gives their brand so much credibility to me because it's providing transparency, not through something that some bureaucrat dictated, but by a snapshot into their business practices that I can look at, I can feel, I can put it on my fridge if I like. Another example of this that I saw was we purchased chicken from Natural Grocers and there was a picture of the family who raised the chickens on the label. Now it could all be fake and a lie, but so it's closer than a USDA organic label for me in terms of transparency and validity and, you know, showing me where these things were sourced. Yeah, I'd rather trust what I'm seeing on the packaging. But that's the question. Who is going to then verify that that's what's going on? And I guess that's part of what the FTC does with policing fraud, right? So it would be fraud to say that that's what they're doing and mm -hmm. if they're not. But the federal government does this with country of origin labeling. They say with meat. But even that's a crock of chicken poo. Because the country origin of labeling, or what country, is it? Country of origin labeling. Yes, thank you. It, cool is the acronym. Um, is not cool at all because the way that it's set up is that it's only where the meat was last packaged has to be in the United States for it to qualify for country of origin USA. So beef could be grown in Paraguay, Argentina, you know, I don't know, anywhere, and then the carcass is then shipped to the United States and then someone strips it down into quarters and eighths and then packages it up as like ribeyes or mm -hmm. whatever. And then if that last final process is done in the United States, then that would qualify as United States country of origin for the country of origin labeling. Well, that's crazy. That's not when a consumer sees that label, they're assuming that means the beef was raised in Kansas. That's what the word origin generally means. Right. <laughs> yes. Okay. And so that reminds me of that other story. I think it was in Wired. There was some animal activists who got footage of a slaughterhouse, which you know mm -hmm. have to comply with tons of regulations. I think it was a pork slaughterhouse and how they use gas. And the slaughterhouse says it's the most humane way to kill the pigs before they process them. And apparently these videos show that that is not the case, that it's not humane and the pigs so are just freaking out. So we're just our pork? Yeah. Uh, so, and that's, <laughs> why did you go? <laughs> you brought up, you made a Holocaust Jews, reference I know. in the context yeah. of pork, and so mm -hmm. I was trying to think kosher. Wow. But, we have Civil Rights Act and Jews. And, yeah. So, that happened under USDA management. This video shows that they're in pain and they're freaking out, and it's not a humane way to sedate them before they're killed and slaughtered. Public knowledge of food is also virtually non existent. I see lots of moms who say like, oh, my kids are lacto, you know, sensitive to lactose. So we give them lactate. It's healthier. It's better. Like you eventually these terms of what is healthy gets misconstrued. And it's like it's lactose free becomes a new label that like, oh, I'm healthy. And we have to disaggregate healthy from humane. And another thing that I've been reading about is enriched flour. 
like fortified with outside mm-hmm. vitamins. It says enriched, you know, that's like, ooh, mm-hmm. that's like a good, like positive word makes me feel like the color yellow, I guess. Like okay. it makes me feel like happy, bright, fresh, full, wholesome, enriched mm-hmm. flower. But actually, enriched flour has just been stripped of the most nourishing ingredients like iron and fiber. So if you get something like stone ground whole wheat flour, you're going to have those naturally occurring nutrients. But it's a lot cheaper to produce the enriched flour. And that's what you find in your grocery store. Before we talk about bleached, because I don't get the springy yellow feeling when I read (laughs) bleached flour. So I read another book for work about why public unions should be unconstitutional. What is a public sector union? So you've got two main kinds of unions. The ones that we're most familiar with are trade unions. So you have electrical workers. For private companies. Yeah, these are on the private side, you have trade unions. So if you're a meat packer or a carpenter or an electrician or you work for a theater company, you have unions and guilds that represent or actors have to be part of the acting guild they allow the employees in those industries to work together to negotiate with the owners and managers of the business to get better wages better working conditions different perks and one of the biggest examples from history is the auto unions they would negotiate whatever their salaries benefits working times whatever with pro-union people say it's the reason why we have the weekend yeah they say unions got us the weekend they got us to where we weren't dependent on the company store like you learn about with the coal Mm -hmm. mining industry where you were basically enslaved Mm-hmm. to the coal company and because the coal company owns the school and they own the church and they own your the house. doctor and they pay for your house and and the tools you use to mm-hmm. work for them they make the you grocery rent. store yeah and so the argument is that trade unions were developed to oppose that kind of totalitarian power and give workers more autonomy Mm-hmm. That's on the private side. So then what's a public sector union? Public sector union, we're talking about police, teachers, uh, janitors are sometimes separate from teachers, so service employees, SEIU is one of the biggest ones there. Government workers generally, so bureaucrats. I assume there's like state-level unions and then oh, federal yeah. unions. Every and- level of government, and oftentimes they're the state and local Unions are affiliates of the national mm-hmm. ones. So you yeah. have the New Checks Jersey out. Teachers Union is a member of the National Education Association or whatever. Mm-hmm. It's a state subsidiary. Famously, you had the Air Traffic Controllers Union fought with the Reagan administration and were on strike, and he just fired all of them. What were they striking for? I can't remember what the exact cause was, but yeah. whatever union strike for. Four hour pay, lunch break whatever, or something. Whatever it was. <laughs> and so this book is about why we shouldn't allow public sector workers to unionize. Can we review for the class what a right to work law is? That's like coming up in my brain and I can't remember. Yeah, so here's another place that libertarians are not easily placed in the left-right paradigm. So a right to work law is usually at the state level and it says you have a right to work for an employer and you're not forced to pay union dues unless you voluntarily join the union. The union can't compel you to support them, even if other people there choose to join a union. How can a union force you to join them? So this is the question. If they can dictate the terms of employment... Then they became the dictator that they sought to usurp? 
well, the dictator that the original idea. Yeah, that's what I mean. Yeah. So my dad is blue collar and has always, not always. Well, he's never been a member of a union, but for most of his career, he's worked for himself. And so I grew up (laughs) understanding that he's a union boy is like union boy is a slur. Yeah. Why? Because, well, union boy makes like $30 an hour to just sit on the curb and eat whatever white bread sandwich his wife packed him that morning and not really work hard. So like he's a union boy just means he's soft and lacks work ethic. And he's talking about private sector unions construction, right? Mm -hmm. So just to be clear, I went and looked this up to make sure I was right. A right to work law refers to state laws that prohibit union agreements between employers and labor unions that force employees who are not union members to contribute to the union. Lots of states that require that by law. And so these states with right to work laws are the opposite of that. The problem from the libertarian perspective to close that loop, I think it was even Ludwig von Mises argued against right to work laws. You should be free to contract however you want. If the employer and the union want to have a contract that forces non-member employees to contribute to the union, they should be free to have that contract. The government shouldn't step in the way. It's dumb, but if they want to be inefficient, let them. Because the state intervention in the market, by preventing that kind of contract, is going to have unintended consequences. It's like the last stage of that meme of your mind being blown. Unions are good to oppose dictatorial employees. Unions are bad because they result in bloated regulatory state. Right to work laws are the solution to dictatorial unions. And then the last one is like, right to work laws are futile because the state needs to eat itself alive. Yeah. (laughs) And so this book is looking at the public sector unions and is full of examples like the one you're saying your dad gave of the reason they should be unconstitutional on the public side is because who are they negotiating with? The trade unions were originally negotiating between the workers and the owners of these corporations. So the public employees are negotiating with voters? Like what? They're stepping in the middle of the political process. If we have a representative government, the voters should be able to elect Mm -hmm. legislators and executives who are going to carry out whatever policies the voters like. But now you have this third party coming in and saying, "Eh, it doesn't really matter what you vote for, we're going to dictate what happens. And are taxpayers funding, at least by proxy, public sector unions? Yeah, because the dues come from the employees and we pay the employees. Right. And so you had old school labor organizers like George Meany and FDR even who opposed public sector unions because they said, well, they have a fiduciary duty to carry out the public good. And if they're looking out for their own self-interest, if they're worried about their wages or their working conditions or their pensions, they're not going to be focused on their job. Public sector unions became a thing really after World War II. It started, in, I think, in New York in like 58. And then JFK had an executive order that legalized it at the federal level. And then Congress has since endorsed and in some cases required collective bargaining with public employees and certain agencies. Why do boomers simp over JFK? I mean, they are obsessed. The myth of Camelot and, look, we're America's at the height of its powers. We went to the moon, but even that was after him. Were they all just like teenagers and happy and they just like associate him with that time? It's like me listening to Fall Out Boy now. I heard it when I was 15. Yeah. It's just stuck because that was when I became aware. And he was assassinated before he got to like have any real. Assaulted people in the pool 
like his brother or whatever. Mm-hmm. His executive order allowed it at the federal level. So going through the 60s and then later, you had public sector unions come into place. But the argument at the time was there are way more voters than there are public employees. So the voters are going to be able to dictate working conditions, salary, pension, uh, agency composition, and whatever the voters as a whole want is going to outweigh the power of the public employees. So you need unions to force the people as a whole to have to listen to the perspective of the employees. You saw this come into play during COVID with teachers unions, right? So in Chicago, schools were supposed to be back in session, but then the teachers decided that they didn't want to go back to school because they were still terrified of getting COVID. And so they just went on strike. And in every other instance, they say that they're striking for the children. But of course, that obviously wasn't the case here. Well, and the general concession is you're allowed to have collective bargaining as a public employee if you give up your right to strike. And so that's a whole debate, too. If you're not allowed to strike, what are you doing? One of the most egregious examples in the book, he was quoting someone from the New York public school system. And she was touring a school and noticed that all the paint near the ceiling was peeling. And it's because the teachers union contract made it to where janitors could only paint up to 10 feet on the wall. And if you had to paint higher than that, you had to hire someone from outside of the school from another part of the union to come and do that. And there weren't enough resources, so the paint just peeled up there. And so that goes back to what your dad was saying about, well, they're sitting there. Because when you're only looking out for your interest and the union interest, you want as many jobs as possible, and you want to work as little as possible. And so you're going to have ridiculous rules like that, where it takes two or three more people to complete a job, and it takes way longer. And the reason that public sector unions are more egregious in this way is other versus private sector unions is that private sector unions, the people who are being harmed are consumers, and that's on a voluntary basis. But the people who are being harmed as the result of failures by public sector unions are the constituency, taxpayers. And ostensibly, the agencies are doing vital public services, and they're standing in the way of the government being able to do its job. The government is dysfunctional now because we have to deal with these union rules. Mm-hmm. And so the book goes through the legal arguments about why that's a problem. So it goes through saying we've delegated powers to these unions in an unconstitutional way. Congress and state legislatures are supposed to be setting these policies, not union negotiators. Or in the when unions are negotiating with the government, if they can't come to an agreement, sometimes there are laws that force that disagreement to go before an arbitrator. And those are completely unelected people, and they just decide what the rule is going to be. You were talking about police unions, or the book talked about it? Yeah, in the introduction to the book, it was saying, for instance, just to take a completely egregious example, (laughs) Derek Chauvin, the guy who kneeled on George Floyd, had tons of citizen complaints against Mm -hmm. him in the years leading up to that. But the police commissioner could not reassign him, could not fire him because of all of the union restrictions. The argument of the book is you need to give executives more autonomy to control their employees, and they can't because of these union agreements. Is that what Schedule F was during Trump? He got in trouble for trying to make it easier to fire federal bureaucrats. Partly. That's not so much a union issue. That's part of the unitary executive theory. So if you watched Vice, that movie about Dick Cheney, that was when they had the scare cutscene with Antonin Scalia saying, oh, he wants to change the way the president works. But the original idea was that the president is responsible for everything that happens in the executive branch. What is that, Jocko's? Extreme ownership. Extreme ownership, yeah. yeah. essentially. But the idea was... I mean, was, someone has to be responsible no, for No, that's it. right. 
if we are giving one person the charge of making sure that all the laws Congress passes go into effect, we need to be able to hold him accountable. And so, yeah, you're going to have different departments and agencies, but he needs to have the ability to oversee what they're doing. And that way, if they do something the public doesn't like, he can be held accountable for it. The voters can elect someone new that's going to do what they want. Under the way it works now, the president doesn't have as much direct control because of tons of stuff we are not going to get into. But unions are a part of that. The Schedule F thing was just reaffirming that, hey, there are going to be career civil servants that work in the agencies no matter who's president. But if you're making significant policy choices, the president has to be able to have direct oversight over that. And Biden redid what Trump undid. He got rid of that plan. Making it more difficult yeah. to fire bad employees. Yes. Not bad, but employees that don't do what the president wants. And Joe Biden seems to be from that like blue dog, pro-labor, pro-union oh, yeah. era. He ran on being the most labor-friendly president ever. That was part of his platform. I assume there's a lot of money in being that guy. Yeah. So that's <laughs> another part of the book. The reason it's saying that public sector unions are unconstitutional, they're different from other special interests. And so Biden is pro public and private sector unions. So you have to separate those. Republicans like Josh Hawley and Marco Rubio and those people are pro private sector union now in ways that Republicans didn't used to be. But yeah, on the public side, they're able to use taxpayer dollars and their own fundraising to manipulate public policy in a way that other special interests aren't. It's not like the NRA is dictating gun policy in this country. I, can I just play devil's advocate for a second? No, um, please do. At the end of the day, when I'm having a glass of wine, I've just never really thought through public sector unions this deep before. Why would you? Okay. So if a teacher, public school teacher, mm -hmm. is accused of... Molestation, let's say. Yeah, that was the example that I was going to use, actually, which happens all the time, like for real, not mm -hmm. just fake accusations, Yeah, turns out. There are union rules that require so many procedures that it often can take up to two years to fire a teacher like that. And in the interim, they're getting full pay and sitting in a room away from kids, so they're not still molesting. But while they're under investigation, yeah, they get paid to sit in a room. But let's just say I'm a good teacher. I'm a, but I'm a guy. I'm a good guy. I'm a math teacher. There's this, how do I put it? Young lady full of teenage angst in my class. And I give her a D and she gets pissed. And so she goes online and lies about me and says, Mr. T touched me. And so then I'm being sued. So in the absence of a public sector union for public school teachers, who defends me? It should be the principal or whoever's in charge of supervising the teacher. If you're falsely accused of and something. So what, you just go to court like anybody else? and Yeah. And when you're in a place of public trust, there should be mechanisms to yeah, figure agree. all that out. And if someone's fired wrongfully, the voters should hold accountable whoever's in charge of right. staffing. So I don't know if that's the superintendent or the school board or what. But part of the problem is we've delegated education and air traffic control and everything to these people and assume that it's going to work well. But going back to what I said from Jordan Peterson... Whatever you don't take responsibility for is going to be dictated to you. Oh, that was a good callback. Very nice. I'll just give you a few examples and then I'll end on a high note. There was an example of an IRS agent and he was constantly making discriminatory decisions about African immigrants. 
He was constantly ruling against them. There were documented cases of him making racial slurs. And then the final straw was he was driving and tried to run another employee off the road. (laughs) Seems like a guy that someone... That would work for the IRS. (laughs) Seems like a guy that would work for the IRS. But (laughs) also seems like a guy we should want fired. It took forever to terminate him. But the union negotiated that when he left the IRS, he would have no record of any of that happening and would have a clean personnel file. And so after he lost his job with the IRS, he worked for the U.S. Forestry Service. And so the title of the book is Not Accountable. The whole point of trying to reform public sector unions or get rid of them is so that that kind of thing can be addressed. And if the person, the supervisor, the executive addressing that misbehavior does it wrong, that's up to voters to fix. And yes, that requires voters to be engaged, but you get the government you deserve. And I know it makes me an inside the beltway awful guy to say anything nice about Mitch Daniels. Who's that? Former governor of Indiana, former OMB guy for Bush. Oh. But (laughs) he wrote the introduction to this book. And just to put a bow on the discussion of public sector unions, when he became governor, Indiana didn't have a law requiring collective bargaining with public sector employees. So it was totally up to him whether he wanted to keep the current union rules, the current collective bargaining agreement or not. And he decided to get rid of it. And he credits that choice with giving him eight years of success. And he gave two metrics I think you'll care about. When he was governor, they were able to make it to where anyone who went into the DMV to do anything was out in under 12 minutes. Perfect. Love that. And all tax refunds were received within two weeks. I don't even care. Anything else he would have done i would have voted for him done and he didn't (laughs) i bet it had that effect yeah well that's what happened and he's saying the reason he was able to get that done is because he didn't have to work for the public union sam brownback tried different reforms in kansas and now if you say his name people hiss even on the right oh yeah so the voters can decide what they like and it's better if the negotiation is between the voters and the politicians not the politicians and the unions because then the voters are cut out i'm ready to cut out Bye. We're singing all day and you can't tame it. High tide, low tide, you know. Night time, the morning time, yeah. We're going strong, headed up down the river. Oh, Lord, I feel the reveling. I feel a change on the rise.